Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. We're going to read this whole section, and then we'll come to the points that are there. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So this is the first from amongst the 12 disciples that are martyred. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Sixteen soldiers to guard this man who... He may have wielded a sword at one time, but he was no threat. And here he is. Herod puts him in prison, puts 16 soldiers to guard him. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, so now this is James, the brother of Jesus. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had, th had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. 
they shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. In this passage, we have a fantastic, miraculous story of Peter's rescue from prison. He is bound by chains between two soldiers with guards at each set of gates, and yet, as if in a dream, the angel leads Peter out of the prison and into the street with absolutely no difficulty. Chains just fall off, the gate just opens, and now, now this is the second angelic jailbreak for Peter. In Acts chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, we read of an angel rescuing Peter and the apostles from prison. And Peter's rescues speak to the fact that God can rescue us from the most hopeless situation. It reinforces our commitment to believe the God of hope for his answers to all our seemingly hopeless situations. And the story also encourages us to keep praying until we have the answer of God. But the answer of God, God's help in time of trouble, can be for a physical rescue or not for a physical rescue. Because I want you to notice that as dramatic as Peter's rescue is, Luke very matter-of-factly tells us that Herod put James to death with the sword. Peter is physically rescued and continues his earthly ministry. James is not physically rescued, completes his earthly ministry, and is joined with the Lord. So it's not the outcome, it's not that specific result that we say, oh, this was a good prayer, that was not. This was God's work, this was not. No, we say, Lord, whatever may it, it may be, physical rescue or not physical rescue, we still trust you and we still look to you. But this morning, I don't want to focus on Peter's rescue or the church's earnest prayer. By the way, you know, the church is praying, they're continuing in prayer, they're persevering in prayer, which is wonderful. But when he actually he comes and shows up, they say, no way, no way. You know, they say, I mean, they say to the girl, you're out of your mind. You know, and I wonder, how many times do we pray like that, right? We're earnestly praying, we're praying in faith, we're really waiting on the Lord, and then something miraculous happens, and we go, oh, no, no way, no way. I kind of, too good to be true, no, no. You know, I, I mean, I don't know what all was going on in their hearts, but we, we can definitely look at that and say, oh, Lord God, help me to pray and to truly trust you and believe you even when it just seems totally hopeless, totally hopeless, bound with chains, in between soldiers, iron gates. Ah, I mean, what is the hope in that situation? And so, but this morning, I, I, I'm, I'm not spending time talking about the church's prayer, I'm not even talking about the will of God. I want to focus on Herod. And I want to tell you three things that we should not do, three ways in which we should not be like Herod. If you remember when we studied Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, 
I was saying, I was sharing with you that Herod is a title. It's not a name. And that there were multiple Herods that are referenced in the Bible. Right? Beginning, or in our context, when we think about it and look at it, we begin with Herod the Great at the time of Jesus' birth. And then we get to Herod Archelaus. We get to Herod Antipas. We get to Herod Philip. And we get to Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, and Herod Agrippa II, when we'll encounter him later on in the ministry of Paul. In this account here in Acts chapter 12, we're reading about Herod Agrippa I. And this man was known particularly for seeking to win and retain the goodwill of the Jewish leaders. That's why that scripture also says that he was, when he saw that when he imprisoned James or, or had James killed, that it pleased the Jews that he went along and imprisoned Peter. So he was looking to curry favor with the Jewish leaders. He wanted them to be pleased with him. Which brings us to the first lesson we learn from the life of Herod. Lesson one, don't please others. Now this point could really be more fully expressed as this. Don't try to please others instead of pleasing God. And that we should seek to please God even at the expense of not pleasing people. Every one of us uh, has been a people pleaser of some kind at some point in our life. Right? When we're young, we make every effort to please people such as our parents, our teachers, our peers. As we get older, it may be our spouses, our bosses, well, maybe the two together, more the same. You know, maybe we think of it like that. We, 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 want, we look to seek to please our spouses, our bosses, our leaders, you know. And, 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 don't, and don't get me wrong. There are times when it's necessary to please people in a sense or to get them at minimum to agree or to be satisfied with an outcome. There's some conflict, there's some situation, there's something else, and we go through it and we do things, and you know, everybody walks away saying, yep, that's good, and we're pleased. Right? So that kind of thing will happen. What's important, though, is whether the people-pleasing behaviors are healthy or unhealthy. And at least some unhealthy people-pleasing behaviors occur when we do it because of our own insecurity or our own needs. And we do things to try to please people, to manipulate, to influence, to do something because we ourselves are in a vulnerable place, because we're hurting, because there's an insecurity, because there's some problem. And instead of finding our identity and self-worth in God, we try to find it through people. So we try to please them. See, when Herod saw that killing James pleased the leaders, he set out to kill Peter also. That was his intent. I mean, this was what, what he was doing. This public trial at the Passover that Herod was planning for was very similar to what was done to Jesus. Bring him out, you know, do the, this public trial for which the conclusion or the, the verdict is already determined, and then kill him. That was what he was planning. 
And I, and I just referred to Acts chapter 5, verse 19, where the angel rescued Peter and the apostles, you know, in that previous incident. But a few verses later, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when Peter and the apostles are being questioned by the Sanhedrin, and they are told not to speak about Jesus, they respond, Peter and the apostles, they respond to the Jewish leaders, and they say, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, we must please God rather than men. You know, the Jewish leaders, we know that though they looked like they were trying to please God, they observed all the law, they prayed publicly, they did the things that were there, that were the outward signs, although they were looking like they were trying to please God, quite ironically, they were actually trying to please people. Jesus himself, or as the word himself, you know, comes to us in John 12, 43, it says, they loved the glory, that's the applause and the approval and the, you know, the, the adulation of the people. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So you can see these examples you know, of the people and the leaders even. And it's because this temptation to please people over God is such an important issue. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 through 4, Paul says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. If we try to please people over God, we will not please either. We will not please people and we won't please God. If we're committed to please God, even at the risk of not pleasing people, we have a much better possibility of pleasing both, of finding favor before God and before man. So then the question for us is, how do I please the Lord? What do I do? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10 says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In our days of prayer and fasting, we were going through Proverbs and particularly praying and saying, Lord, we want wisdom and we want discernment to know what is right and wrong. And when we ask God for discernment, one of the applications of that discernment is to say, Lord, I want to try and discern what is pleasing to you. And the thing is, the Bible doesn't leave us in doubt. It doesn't leave us with you know, that question saying, oh, I don't know what to do. Because you don't have to search very far to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Ephesians chapter 5, that verse that I just, where this verse that I just read comes from. Ephesians chapter 5 starts out with, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then it continues with clear charges about avoiding sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, deeds of darkness, drunkenness, and the like. So he's saying, don't do all those things. And then it's similar to Romans 8.8, 8, where it says that there, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The acts of the flesh are obvious, are clear. Right? The Bible describes all these things, Galatians chapter 5. But discerning what is pleasing to the Lord and then pleasing Him is not just about what we don't do. It's also about what we do. And so Psalm 51, 16 to 19, says that the sacrifices of righteousness, the sacrifices of a broken and contrite heart, our repentant hearts, please the Lord. Psalm 69, verse 30 to 31, says that praising God with a song and magnifying Him with thanksgiving, that is our worship and our testimonies, those please the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, tells children that they please God when they obey their parents in the Lord, but by extension, it is a statement for all of us that our obedience pleases God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, tells us that doing good and sharing what we have pleases God. We please God when we walk with Him, when we walk in His ways. Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 says that Enoch walked faithfully with God and then God took him. But in Hebrews, to explain that, in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So, and there are many more scriptures of this kind. You just, you know, search for the word even. Search for the word pleased or pleasing God, that phrase. And you will see these scriptures. So there's multiple ways in that the Lord is telling us, here's what you can do to please me. Here's what you can do to walk in my ways. And, and we know when Jesus comes out of being baptized, when he comes out of the water, the voice that comes from heaven is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Pay attention to him. Listen to him. Take note of what he's doing. So when we follow Jesus, we please God. So you may listen to all of these things. You may listen to what I'm saying and you may think to yourself, well, I don't think I'm pleasing God. Or at best, I'm pleasing him only some of the time. Not all the time. Let me encourage you. Let me set your mind at rest. We all sin. And we all fall short of the glory of God. But thank God for his grace. For the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for his unconditional love. That enables us to repent. That, come to, that can come to him with this repentant heart and say, oh God, I repent. I, you know, I, I confess my guilt. And then the Lord cleanses us and he's pleased with us. Thank God that we can praise him. We can worship him. Thank God that in spite of all that we may fail in, we have an opportunity to come and to obey him afresh. Thank God that his mercies and his kindness to us are new, are renewed. 
so that we don't remain in our sin, but we have life. And so thank God that when we come to Christ and he is in us and working through us, we can please the Lord. Our focus is not on whether we are not doing everything that we should not or that we are doing everything that we should. Our focus is on dying to self, being raised up to new life in Christ Jesus, allowing Christ to live through us. Then we will be pleasing to the Lord. So, don't be like Herod and try to please people. Live to please God. Lesson number two, don't blame others. When Herod found out that Peter was gone and that he would not be able to please the Jewish leaders by killing Peter, he had the guards put to death. Even, even if there was a perfunctory investigation of the circumstances, it would have been clear that the guards could have done nothing to prevent this. You know, they were trying to do what they were supposed to do. And if Herod was not already aware of the first prison escape, somebody may have told him that Peter had a history of giving his guards the slip. You know? But Herod wasn't interested in being fair. Herod was not trying to look out for the guards. His popularity was at risk. His ego was deflated. And he wanted someone to blame. Almost every time in our lives, when things don't go the way that, they, that we had hoped, when we're not pleased with what is happening, and even more importantly, when we know that we have not been pleasing to God, we look for someone to blame. When God confronted Adam in the Garden of Eden, he said, don't look at me, God. This woman that you gave me, she made me do it. And when God turned to Eve, she said, don't look at me. The serpent that you made deceived me. Ever since the beginning of days, human beings have been pointing the finger and blaming others. And the easiest ones to blame are those that are closest to you, physically and relationally. Very easy. It's because of you that God's not happy with me. It's because of you that I'm not happy. It's because you hurt me that I'm hurting you. It is the abusive husband that strikes his wife and says, look at what you made me do. It is the critical wife who says, if only you were loving and caring, I wouldn't have to yell at you. My brother made me do it. My sister made me do it. They forced me. It's you that... And each one of us can fill in the blanks. We've done it plenty of times. From a very young age, we know how to blame somebody else. And you know, you may be right. 
at least some of the, those times, that someone else bears responsibility for at least some part of what went wrong. They bear some responsibility. They did something. People do and say all sorts of things every single day that affect us deeply, that cause us to retaliate or cause us to withdraw and hurt. But you know, after pointing out that we are not to judge others, and you could say that we're not to blame others or accuse others, Paul points out in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Hebrews 4.13 says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When we stand before God, laid bare before him, there's no one else to blame. You can't say him, her, them. You say, Lord, me. The book of Ecclesiastes closes with these words. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, very similarly says this, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Instead of blaming others, we need to come repentant to the Lord and call out for his mercy. Because when we do that, as Psalm 32 verse 5 says, when I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's why in 1 John 1, 9, that verse that encourages us and we quote it, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, somebody around you may have done something terrible, but don't react in sin. Don't blame others. Instead, come to the Lord and say, oh Lord God, there is anger. There is hurt, there is retaliation, there is all sorts of stuff that's coming up in me and I confess them to you. I bring them to you and I ask you to cleanse me. So, don't be like Herod and blame others. Be accountable to God for yourself. Lesson three, don't mislead others. Don't mislead others. Acts 12, 21 to 23, those verses that we read, says that on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, 
an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, unless, and now when you read that, if you're thinking in your mind, worms just appeared on the stage, they came up on him, and he got eaten up. I mean, that's not really what happened. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian from the first century, actually writes about this incident. And he says that when this took place, Herod neither rebuked the people nor rejected the impious flattery. And Josephus goes on to report that Herod had violent abdominal pains and that he died five days later. So it is most probable that the judgment of God came on Herod immediately in the form of some intestinal roundworms or something else inside and he was essentially consumed from within. So, pretty dramatic. Why was Herod judged? Why have worms eat him up? Because he did not give glory to God. More specifically, he craved the glory of God for himself. He put himself in the place of God and when the people played to his vanity and his narcissism, he didn't stop them, but rather he behaved as if he was deserving of all this divine adoration. He was glad to let the people behave as if he was the greatest. And the Bible warns us that the proud will be humbled. Those who exalt themselves will be brought down. The story of Herod reminds us of the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. When Nebuchadnezzar said something similar, he did something similar. He, he went out on his palace walls, he looked at the city and he said, look at Babylon. I built this great city, it is my palace. I built this great place by my power. I built this place to show how great I am. And the Bible says that God drove him out of his mind and out of the city. He lived in the wild, in the wilderness, for seven years, eating grass like an animal, until the Lord restored his senses. When you don't give glory to God, no matter who you are, no matter what position, no matter what power, no matter what how you got there, no matter what happened, no matter whether it was the will of God to even bring you there, if you do not give glory to God, there is a judgment of God. And as much as Herod's pride and self-glorification were wrong, there was an equally grievous issue here in that he was misleading the people. He got the people to look at him as if he was God, rather than to look to God, who was the only true and living God. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, it says, The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like the little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, 
It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. God is saying, you, you have a responsibility, you have an accountability and all of that, but you have a very clear examination of God on your life to see whether you're making somebody else stumble. Leaders, pastors, teachers, and really every one of us who have any opportunity to influence somebody else, at minimum we may be influencing our own children or family members. All of us have to pay careful attention to the nature and extent of that influence. We have to be led by the Lord to lead others to the Lord. Our goal is not to lead another person to ourselves or for anything of ours. We want people to look to Jesus. They should look to us, look to imitate us only in as much as we are imitating Christ. So, don't be like Herod and mislead people. Point people to the only true and living God. And by the way, now that we've considered all that Herod did and what he did not do, we have to make sure that we don't miss the very last verse we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 24. It says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. No matter what Herod did, no matter whether the political leaders were corrupt or not, no matter the persecution of the church, no matter the prevailing darkness, the light of the gospel of Jesus continued to shine, continued to spread. The church continued to grow. The will of God continued to be fulfilled. Oh, that's the great joy that we have. That's the great promise and assurance that we have. So this morning as we listen to these words and as we consider these truths, how do we respond? We respond by living in the fear of the Lord. As we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of the whole thing, this is the conclusion. Live in the fear of the Lord. Walk in his ways. Be pleasing to him. And let the Lord direct our steps. When that faithfulness, that obedience, that, that commitment is what is leading and guiding us, that is what's orienting our lives. Oh, big difference. We don't have to be living like Herod. We live as the Lord intended for us to live. But this morning, as a point of application, I want to challenge you. And even as you're committing to live in the fear of the Lord, even as you're committing to live in the will of God, walk in the ways of God, be obedient to God, I want to challenge you this morning that you would play, that you would pay particular attention to this issue of blaming others. Maybe it's not a big issue in your life, personally. Maybe it is. But I would challenge you this week to examine your life.
and to say, do I tend to just blame somebody else? Maybe I don't get angry. Maybe I don't do it in a very, you know, visible way. Maybe I just think about it in my mind. But I say, oh, this happened because. This happened because this person. And I challenge you, this week, come to the Lord. And you say, Lord God, what have I been doing? Have I really just been accusing and blaming somebody else? Or have I been accountable before you? Have I looked to your word and to your spirit to cleanse me and to deal with the sins that I may be manifesting? Or have I turned to point my finger at someone else? It's very easy to blame. Very easy. It's very easy to want to seek revenge, to get back at somebody, to retaliate. It's very difficult to say, no, Lord, I come to you. And what happened in that situation, no matter what the provocation was, I sinned. I had sinned. I didn't do what you wanted me to do. And I'm asking you to cleanse me. I'm asking you to clear my conscience. I'm asking you to wash my hands. I'm asking you to remove this guilt so that I don't have to live in blame and accusation and pointing fingers. I can look to you. You know, we've spoken in the past about forgiving others. This is not quite about forgiving itself, although it's related and connected. This is about how we think of the situations that are in our lives and what we do when we respond to those situations. We excuse our behavior based on somebody else. But what we've really got to do is to take accountability for it ourselves. So this morning, I want to encourage you. Don't be like Herod. Every time you read about him and when you go back to this passage, the Lord will continue to speak to you and show you more and do all of that. But let us be people who will truly walk in the ways that the Lord has ordained for us, where we will be people that are helping others, serving others, living in grace and mercy to others because we're pleasing God. And the Lord will lead us to serve. The Lord will lead us to bless. The Lord will guide and direct our steps so that as we please him, as we walk in his ways, as we do what is in his will, oh, the church will grow. Our lives are enriched. The will of God will be fulfilled. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity, Lord, to look at this word to consider what we can learn. Lord, many times we look at the lives of the heroes of faith and we say, oh, what can we learn? But Lord, we thank you that we can look at those who didn't do some things right and we can learn from their lives too. And so, Father, we pray that, Lord, we will learn from Herod and we will learn what we should not do. But, Lord, we will look to your word and be reminded afresh this morning of what we should do. Father, thank you. And I pray right now that your particular grace will be upon every single person so that this week 
They will examine their hearts. They will come before you in humility. They will ask you to reveal where they have been blaming somebody else. For whatever the situation. And Lord, today, today there will be a commitment. Today there will be a transition. Today there will be a change to saying, I don't need to blame anyone. I just need to be accountable to the Lord myself. Lord God, you do it. You do it. We look to you. We thank you, Jesus, that in our church, we want to be a group of people whose fingers are not pointed in any other direction than at you. Because we're pointing people to Jesus. Help us, Lord. Grant us grace, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.